Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Criminal Discourse, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, I'm Trish, and my co-host slash partner in true crime, Maddie. Hi, everyone. So we are excited to be talking to you all about one of our favorite subjects through this podcast. I've been a longtime listener of podcasts, usually on my commute to and from work. I love listening to Crime Junkies, A Date with Dateline, Moms and Murder. And if you haven't given them a listen to, please do so. And I'm sure they will become your guilty listening pleasure as they are mine. Which ones do you like, Maddie? Um, So I'm more of a my favorite murder person myself. Yeah, the problem, sometimes I run into an issue because there's quite a lot of language in that particular but now that you've turned me on to date with dateline that's my pc well not pc but your go-to in the car with your dog yeah my pg that's yeah. what I, my pg because i have my two-year-old in the car there can't be like f-bombs all over the place right because you know she's like a sponge we don't need that at daycare correct that's being called in for a lot of parental meetings so let's get started as we don't have any sponsors and this is a straight up labor of love at this point <laughs> The first case we are going to cover is one that started my interest in true crime, and that is the 1979 murder of Susan Reinhardt and the disappearance of her two children, Karen and Michael. Had you ever heard of this case before, Maddie? No, I hadn't ever heard, and we kind of went in our pre-production. If Can we even call it pre-production? So the most shocking part for me was I didn't know about the children until we got to, like, the end of the whole story and this is going to be two parts because this is such a convoluted crazy story the children didn't even register with me until the end and I was like uh, that was my OMG moment so let's save that okay little mystery for our our listeners okay but yes yes what really drew my interest to true crime was this case one because the location of where Susan Reinhardt's body was found was one that I was very familiar with and two it was the first true crime book that I had ever read and I'm talking about the 1984 bestseller by Joseph Wambach entitled Echoes in the Darkness and least not to forget the 1987 miniseries by the same name now I know you weren't born yet I was not you weren't even a thought in the cosmos. But I was. I was a teenager, and I remember watching this. The miniseries stars Peter Coyote, Stockard Channing, Grease. Did you ever yes. see Grease? Yes, she played Rizzo. I, I love her. Yeah. Robert LaGoya, Peter Boyle. He was on Everybody Loves Raymond. He played the father. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Cindy Pickett was the mom in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Have you seen? No. You've never seen Ferris Bueller? No. Really? I've heard about it. I've seen like little clips oh, of it. Oh my God. Okay. No, we have to have a viewing party. That's no. So, Ferris Bueller Days Off, and then Gary Cole, who's currently stars, I think, on Veep and The Good Fight. And he also played one of the announcers next to Jason Bateman in Dodgeball. Question though, I know your parents. And when you were 17, did you watch this with, oh, with your my parents? mom? How, what was her? Oh my. Just a lot of oh my, oh my, and shaking. Oh my of, you, you've met my mom. I just can't believe. I it. just right, like she would just shake her head. <laughs> just you, oh. yes, I, yeah, that's that why would... I'm so interested. I would just want to see. See, I don't even want to watch the miniseries. I want to watch your mom, mom watch the miniseries. It is fun. Yes, we might have to have her over and do that. Because okay. I don't think she remembered watching it. After you listen to our two-part episode, as Maddie says, we are cutting it in half because there is just so much information to share. Go ahead and log on to YouTube and you can watch it. So our story predominantly takes place in Upper Marion Township in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Now, more specifically, a lot of the individuals we're going to be talking about in regards to this crime worked at Upper Marion Senior High School. 
Now, Upper Marion Township may not be familiar to the three or four family and friends listening to this podcast right now, but King of Prussia might be a little more recognizable. And King of Prussia is an area known, of course, for its mall, King of Prussia Mall, which, tag this away under worthless trivia knowledge, Maddie, we have overtaken the Mall of America in Minnesota as the largest mall in the United States. That's pretty impressive. It is pretty impressive. I thought Mall of America was the biggest, but no, they just added like 500,000 square feet of retail space. So Mall of America's 2.5. We're now 3 million. And this was a recent ad, right? I think so. Because I went, I think, before the ad and I already oh. got lost. Like, it's just, you, know, you can't do it in a day. Like it's, No, it's a vacation destination, I think, for some. Who like to For shop? Some, who like to who shop? Who don't shop online? Who, who isn't? It's not like a painful, stressful Correct. situation to shop to go right. there because you yeah. need a sherpa because you have to load them with the packages. <laughs> because I can just now picture like Mall of America and just like donkeys with like. Right. No, I thought my child. <laughs> yeah. Load okay. Them up. There you go. But he would drop the packages and leave them, so I couldn't do that. So I shop online. Okay. So now back to our story. We're going to start out in the fall of 1963. And that was the year that Susan Myers was a newly hired English teacher at Upper Marion Senior High School. It sounds like this was her first job coming out of college as she was 23, but she was assigned a mentor at Upper Marion, and her mentor happened to be the head of the English department, and his name was William Bradfield, and he was about seven years her senior. So now within a year, the two would become romantically involved slash lovers. And this would begin a 17-year, and I'm going to use air quotes here, somewhat secret relationship because people did know about it. Right. But he was adamant about keeping their relationship under wraps. He didn't want a lot of people to know. And we'll come to find out that Bill Bradfield kept a lot of things under wraps. Now, Bill Bradfield, just to describe him to you, he stood about six feet, three inches. He had brown beard with kind of a brownish blonde hair. And he was a former college wrestler and he kind of kept that stature after he got out of college. But probably the most standout feature for him was his eyes because they said his eyes, depending on his mood, could be very icy or poetic. Mm. He was a very popular teacher at Upper Marion Senior High School. He taught the advanced placement courses. He taught Greek and Latin. He was very well liked by students and peers. But he was also a really big woman. I feel like any time where you hear, we should really keep this relationship a secret, there's a to that of because I'm also having relationships with everyone else. Multiple women. So not only was he a womanizer, but the women that he would womanize were described as being, how to put this, they were like unattractive women to moderately attractive women, like almost like plain Janes Mm. to, to, you know, to be nice. They were plain Janes. And he had this, this ability, whatever, to pick up women that had a lot of insecurities and loneliness issues. Like, he would make them feel valued. Yeah. And he, he had this almost hypnotic effect on women so that he was able to juggle these. And we'll come to find out how many women he really juggled that we know about. There may have actually been more. But this also applied to his relationships with men, too, as we'll come to find out. Not not anything in a homosexual way, but just in terms that of... manipulation. Yes. And that manipulation, that's a good word. So about 10 years into their secret relationship, Bill and Sue Myers had gone on a trip over the summer sabbatical to Europe, and they had taken his two older sons. Now, Bill had told Susan that he had been involved in spiritual marriages twice before, that he wasn't really ever been married, but he had common law spiritual marriages. His first wife, 
he met in college. I believe her name was Fran. And they got spiritually married. And they had two sons, Martin and William. They were born about a year apart. Around the age of five or six, Fran left. And I don't know why she left. I couldn't find anything as to... She left to go... We don't know. I mean, I don't think she's dead. I think she just was like, I'm out. So he's left with these two young boys. And he realizes he needs a mom for them. So he meets spiritual wife number two and her name is Muriel and she says okay I'll, I'll help raise your sons and but I want a child of my own and he agreed and then they had he had his third son David and he provided a home for her and the children in a neighboring county in Chester County so they did not live with him and by all accounts I could not find I think he lived with his parents actually when he had met Sue Myers he so, was the, living with so his own children didn't live with him at this point it doesn't sound like it no like they were all living with Mariel and hmm. he was living elsewhere. So after about 10 years, Bill agreed after they came back from his trip from Europe to move in with Susan. But he had a condition. And that condition was that their relationship had to remain a secret. No one could know they were living together, in part because they were both teachers. And back then, especially more so than the now, there is a moral turpitude clause in teaching contracts that, you know, you kind of are stuck at a higher level. So two unwed teachers in the early 70s living together, cohabitating together, could get you fired. That's like, and I mean, obviously, I didn't, I wasn't around in this whole period. Correct, you were not. But number one, that just seems insane. Number two, I feel like there was a lot worse things going on in the 70s than two teachers cohabitating. Cohabitating. Yeah. But still, teacher contract, you're held to a higher moral ground. And again, living in sin was not higher moral ground. They could have gotten fired. But she agreed. She's like, okay, after 10 years, we're moving in together. <laughs> Making some, some progress here. 10 years. 10 years. So I'm going to go back a little bit to 1966, just to kind of introduce somebody else at Upper Marion Senior High School. And that is Jay Smith. He began as the new principal of the school. Now, the first day Jay Smith shows up to this public school, he is dressed in his full military dress uniform. So Jay Smith was a colonel in the 79th Army Reserve Unit, who he served under General John Eisenhower. And if that name's familiar, Eisenhower, it's because he was the son of the 34th President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. So as first impressions go, he made quite an impact that day. I can only imagine. <laughs> Showing up in military uniform. But not only how he dressed, but how he acted. He was, by all accounts, lack of a better term, bizarre. Mm -hmm. Like he would lock himself in his office for hours at a time and not come out if he was in his office. If he wasn't, they couldn't find him anywhere in the building. Like he disappeared for periods of time. And like just to place, because it sounded odd to me the first time we talked about it, like the fact that this high ranking military official would be the principal of a high school. But we did say too, like this was a very affluent area in yes. high school. Like this was not a middle to low class no, area. No, this was probably this was... middle to upper middle class, if not high, yeah. suburban area outside of Philadelphia. So besides the the locking himself away or not finding him in the building, his guilty pleasure seemed to be flustering his staff. Like he took perverse pleasure in shocking them, be it either making up words that didn't exist 
like using it in a sentence like they should know what he's talking about to seem smarter Mm -hmm. than he was just to fluster them about that. Or he would sometimes go on these long rants over the loudspeaker system, sometimes taking up whole periods on whatever subject set him off at that time, be it from a staff member or even a student. And students soon learned that they could come up to him and say, Dr. Smith, because he did eventually get his doctorate while he worked there, like so-and-so, so-and-so. And then he would just get on the loudspeaker and just start going off on tangents. So they knew that he would take up that time. So he would also do some weird, like, just, again, bizarre behaviors. Like you would find him washing his hands up to 15 times a day or after school hours, janitorial staff would see him walking around in his underwear. He would also bring his trash from home and dump it in the school's dumpster. And again, in front of staff members that would see this, and they'd be like, what's going on? Why is he doing that? Then probably one of the most bizarre things was the chemical smells that would be coming from his office when he'd be behind a locked door. I don't know. I feel like that that fits pretty soundly in the picture. (laughs) (laughs) If it's him, it's just bizarre. Because (laughs) no one knows, like, what what is that smell? Like, his secretary's like, I don't know what that is. He ran a very laissez-faire type of school. He's a very hands off principle to the point that there wasn't much support for teachers. Teachers were kind of left up to their own. Well, he was way too busy. He had to be in his office sniffing chemicals. Something. So he would remain the principal at Upper Marion Senior High School for approximately 11 years. Now, Jay Smith was married, just to kind of describe him to you. He was a tall man, receding hairline, dark hair. They said for his standout characteristic, it was also his eyes, but these eyes weren't hypnotic or poetic. They were beady and evil. (laughs) That's, I mean, one of the staff members there nicknamed him the Prince of Darkness. And he had kind of jowls. Also has been described as, I thought this was the best when I read it, and I had to reread it a couple times. A staff member had described him looking like an obscene phone call. (laughs) That's a terrible (laughs) way to describe someone. Now, Jay Smith was married. He was married to a woman named Stephanie, who was apparently the exact opposite of him in personality. She was very outgoing. She was warm and friendly. She would call everybody by the name Hun. You know, so I I think that's true when you say opposites attract. Because those two did, yeah, they had, I don't know how those two got together. And they had two daughters, the older one being named after her mom, Stephanie, and a younger daughter named Sherry. In 1972-73, a new English teacher started at Upper Marion Senior High School, and her name was Susan Reinhardt. Now, at the time, she had been married to Ken Reinhardt. He was a former Air Force captain who was a navigator on a B-52 bomber, but after retiring from the Air Force, had taken a job with a bank in Philadelphia. Now, the Reinhardt family settled down in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, which is a little south of the King of Prussia, Upper Marion Township area, but their marriage was in trouble. I think it had been going on for a while. They got married very young. They had children very young and a military lifestyle. They moved around a lot. So I think that had taken its toll. And by the early 70s, Susan was not happy. So around 1974, Susan had hosted, I had never heard of this before, a literary shootout at her home for the English department. I don't know if that's where they get together and kind of rap about English, but she (laughs) rap about I don't know, (laughs) have a discourse about English. At this meeting, it seems that this was the beginning of their secret relationship. There being Susan Reinhardt and Bill. Bill Bradfield, correct. She had told a friend and a co-worker, Sharon Lee, and a psychologist she was seeing after her divorce. Her name is Rosalind Rivkin. Now, if you read Echoes in the Darkness, her name in there is referred to as Weinberger. She shared that she would see Bill off and on in this secret relationship, but that within five years, when he was emotionally 
and financially secure, they would become man and wife. So this is what she was sharing with people. This was going on. There were some other things happening in the area. So in August of 1977, there was a Sears and Roebuck store located in St. David's, a nearby town. And one day, a man had come in the door dressed as as an armored guard. He walked up to the cashier and gave his ID card. And this ID card had the name of Carl S. Williams. And the cashier checked it against the manifest and said, yep, okay. And this guard walked out with about 30, a little less than $35,000 in cash. Now, what was soon discovered when the real guard showed up to get the cash receipts is that they had just been robbed because that was not Carl S. Williams that showed up. In December of 1977, a few months later, a similar robbery occurs in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. This time again, a security guard walks into the Sears and Roebuck store at the Shimini Mall around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, and he gives the ID card to the cashier with the name Albert J. Wharton on it. Now, this cashier knew about the previous robbery, so when she checked the name against the manifest, it matched, but the signatures didn't match. She was smart enough to check the signatures. She had notified mall security, and she went back out front where the guard was getting a little impatient and she said hey we asked for some money to be delivered we need some dollar bills and we need some change do you have that with you and he's like no no that's on another truck so she knew that he wasn't a real guard Mm -hmm. because that had never happened before when anytime they'd ask for money it would always come on the truck that the person who was picking up the receipts for the day so this security guard was getting very antsy he's like listen just give me back my card give me back my card and he ended up grabbing it from her and taking off so by the time Moss security and the police got there he was long gone so now there's a robbery and an attempted robbery in the area around this time now also in 1977 there was an altercation up at upper marion senior high school that involved susan reinhardt and sue myers you want to guess what the altercation was over um billy there you go at one point Sue Myers had come up to Susan Reinhardt in the faculty lounge that day, and she confronted her, actually physically kicking her in the shin, screaming at her to leave Bill alone. And she said, if you care for yourself or your kids, you better leave Bill alone. So this really shook up Susan Reinhardt. I mean, one, to be confronted publicly and then to be physically assaulted. She had at the time been in a therapy group on the recommendation of her psychologist. And she went into the group and she told the group members really kind of what she was dealing with, that she's in this relationship with him. He keeps telling her that he has to back out gently from his relationship with Sue Myers and that he has to be financially and emotionally secure. And these group members are looking at Susan Reinhardt like, girl, get a clue. He is manipulating you. He is giving you excuse after excuse, and he is up to no good. Unfortunately, Susan Reinhardt didn't listen because she ended up having a conversation with a fellow co-worker by the name of Pat Schooner that she basically said that Bill was worth waiting for. So in May of 1978, there was an announcement at Upper Marion Senior High School that Dr. J. Smith would be leaving his position as principal for a new role in the administrative offices as the special services coordinator. So the reason for this move was because Dr. Smith had been caught shoplifting at various businesses in the area. This was really kept under wraps. He was never charged with shoplifting. Again, I think partly because it was an affluent area and he had an affluent position. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a colonel in the Army Reserves. He's the principal of the area high school. The agreement was you're going to step down from your position here. But I love that that's what caused the step down and right. not the chemicals and the right they're walking around in your underwear well and i failed i failed to mention this to you especially in the era now of me too 
Back then, Dr. Smith would make disparaging statements to attractive female staff members. In one incident, he had given a ride home to a teacher, a female teacher, where he told her she's quite attractive and she should really think about getting a job in the sex industry. She'd make a lot of money. That's a lawsuit today. (laughs) Back then, unfortunately... I think that happened a lot. But that just, again, goes to show you his character, which isn't very good. In the summer of 1978, Bill Bradfield had taken classes at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he took these classes with a former student who actually was a substitute teacher at Upper Marion High School named Chris Pappas. So it was during this summer he introduced Bill to Joanna Aiken. Now, in the book, Echoes in the Darkness, she's referred to as Rachel, but her real name is Joanna Aiken. And this would also begin an on-and-off-again relationship that would last for years. So just to keep count here, we've got Sue Myers, Mm -hmm. who he's living with secretly, Susan Reiner, who he's on-again, off-again, secretly, and now Joanna, who were on-again, off-again, secretly. Correct. He's not a hit-it-and-quit-it. I mean, he does long-term. He sticks to it. He sticks in long-term relationships. Just multiple. Just multiple long-term relationships, yes. See, if they had just had sister wives, you know, the TLC show back then. Right. Would have been taken care of. He'd be living large. He'd be living his best life. August 19th, 1978. Outside of a pizzeria, a young couple sitting on the curb at the Gateway Shopping Center when they notice a brown Ford Granada circling the parking lot that ends up parking next to a van. They notice a man wearing a a cow-like hood over his entire face, which was a bit shocking, but what was more shocking was the guns he was carrying in each of his hands when he exited the vehicle, and they saw him peering into the van. So the young couple literally crawl away and go to a payphone. When police arrived, the couple were giving the description of what they witnessed when they noticed the Granada slowly cruising in their direction. And they're like, yeah, that's it. So the police immediately begin pursuit and they are following this erratically driven car. They eventually get it to pull over on Route 202 on the on-ramp at Valley Forge Road. The police order the suspect out of the vehicle when one of the officers notices a 22 Ruger on the seat of the car that this suspect had been reaching for. So they're yelling, I'm like, drop it, drop it, hands up. And the suspect goes, oh, oh my, puts his hands up. Once the suspect is detained, he is found out to be Dr. J. Smith, and they place him under arrest. So they start searching the vehicle, and what they discover is a treasure trove. They discover four loaded handguns, the sleeve of a football jersey fashioned into a hooded mask, bolt cutters, other tools that are used to break into cars, oil filters with two bullet holes in the top, and these would be come to find out to be homemade silencers. They found a syringe in the car filled with what at the time was an unknown substance, and they found another syringe in his pocket. The substance would be later found out to be Placidil, which is a tranquilizing drug that induces unconsciousness within minutes of injection. So they're like, oh boy. So he's taken to jail, and of course he's allowed a phone call, and the officers overhear him on the phone directing someone to go to his house before the police get there and make sure that everything is removed, including the files. So this police officer that overhears this call is like, we need to get a search warrant. So the police begin a stakeout, and around 2 a.m., they witness this car pull up into Dr. Smith's driveway and go down to like a basement apartment, like an original man cave, and start 
loading up boxes into his trunk. So, of course, the police swoop in and they find out that this guy, who they say looks like Woody Allen, was a close friend of Dr. Smith's. He had been a former librarian, but I don't know if he had any connection with Upper Marion. I think it's just somebody he knew. What the police discovered in the boxes and in the basement was if they thought the car was good, this was the mother load. So they discover over 800 milligrams of marijuana. They find vials of contraband pills, Valium, Librium, Pasadil, all of these illegal drugs. They found stolen school equipment and reproductions of famous paintings from the school district that he literally stole off the wall. They find four gallons of nitric acid, but he has four gallons of it that he stole from the school. Two silver badges and security guard uniforms. They find bogus ID cards from the U.S. Army. They find five more oil filter silencers, latex gloves, a pile of blue combs bearing the name of Dr. Smith's Army Reserve Unit. They find all of these guns registered using a fake ID. And the police would later find out that one of the IDs used was of a male teacher who worked at Upper Marion Senior High School that had his wallet stolen from his desk. Probably the biggest thing that shocked investigators, though, was the library of books that he had. And here are some of the titles. The Canine Tongue, Her Bastille Dreams, Her Four-Legged Lover, (laughs) The Bastille's Erotics, and Animal Fever. He also had a lot of swinger publications of both gay and straight nature. So Dr. Smith apparently believed that dogs could be trained or used as sex surrogates that might help um, decrease the divorce rates in the United States. But he had also a significant quality of chains and several locks to go with them. So, of course, they ca- you know they catalog all of this information. Dr. Smith is charged with the Sears theft at the St. David store, the attempted theft of the Nishimity Mall Sears, the prowling with loaded guns at the Gateway Shopping Center, property theft from Upper Marion Senior High School, and a possession of illegal contraband. It was around this time that also found in the car when they initially pulled him over, they found his daughter's social security guard, Stephanie. Now, Stephanie was married by this time to a guy named Eddie Hunsberger, and both Stephanie and Eddie were heroin addicts, and they had a history of going in and out of rehabs at the time. Eddie had also been convicted of various drug offenses and armed robbery and was on probation himself. February 25th of 1978, Stephanie and Eddie were visiting his parents' home in North Wales, Pennsylvania to help complete his income taxes, because apparently he must have worked some. And this wasn't unusual for them to visit. Eddie usually visited his parents once a week, so that wasn't out of the norm. But while they were there, they told the Hunsburgers that they had to go somewhere, but they would be back. Okay, They finished up the income tax, but they had to go out and they would come back. But the problem was they never returned. Ever. After a few weeks, the Hunsburgers contacted the Smiths. Mrs. Hunsberger talked to Jay Smith, who told them, oh, yeah, they had they moved to California because Eddie found out there was a warrant for his arrest and they owed money to some drug dealers in the area. So they needed to get out of town. Now, Eddie's mom was like, what? Like, why wouldn't he contact us? So Eddie's mom did some investigating and found out that there was never a warrant for him at that time. Plus, they had left all of their belongings behind, including the uncashed income tax. Like everything. Everything. And I'm sorry, you have two people addicted to heroin and they're going to leave all of their belongings and money? No. So both Stephanie and Eddie were to begin a methadone clinic. And when they failed to show, the clinic contacted Jay Smith in March of 78. And 
he told them that he was going to be detoxing Stephanie himself with Placidil, the tranquilizing drug that knocks you unconscious, and some really good pot. Which, at that point, like, unless they thought it was a joke, like, why wouldn't they call the police? Well, Eddie was on probation. They did contact the probation officer, and the probation officer actually did, at that time, issue a warrant for his arrest in September of 78. But to this day, neither Stephanie nor Eddie have ever resurfaced. There's no trace of them anywhere. In August of 1978, Dr. Smith is in the Chester County Prison trying to arrange bail. So he receives a letter from Bill Bradfield offering his sympathy and support. And this would begin a correspondence between the two men. Now, in fall of 1978, Susan Reinhardt had informed her psychologist that she was still seeing that her and Bill were still in love, but nothing had really changed in their relationship. Now, around this time, unfortunately, Susan Reinhardt's mother passed away, leaving her an inheritance of about $34,000 and a wedding ring valued at $1,500. So late 70s, that was a lot of money, especially for a single mom of two. Around that time, Bill Bradfield woke up one morning in the fall of 78 claiming, so he's in bed with Sue Myers, he wakes up suddenly, claims that Dr. Smith is innocent of the Sears robbery. And she's looking at him like, what? He claimed that Dr. Smith was with him in Ocean City, Maryland, at the time of the first robbery. Now, Sue points out to him, like, you never mentioned anything to me about running into him. And he goes, well, it just didn't seem important at that time. But you got to understand now he couldn't have done the first robbery because he was with me. So if he didn't do the first one, he didn't do the second one. It's just so like, could you just picture that you're laying in bed with Mm -hmm. your, well, not husband, your person that you're living with, and suddenly they pop up and say, oh my gosh, you know that guy that used to be our principal? He couldn't have done that crime he's accused of just out of nowhere. Like there's no context. You couldn't have a less natural way of bringing that into the conversation. But he did. (laughs) And she (laughs) believed him, I guess. He also told other friends of his that were also teachers, uh, one being Vince Velatis. He told him that Dr. Smith had to be a hitman for the mafia and that he was going to kill Susan Reinhardt because he claimed that Dr. Smith and Susan Reinhardt had been having an affair and she ended it. So in the fall of 78, around the time Susan's mother passes away and leaves her inheritance, all of a sudden these statements come out about mm-hmm. Dr. Smith wanting to kill Susan Reinhardt and that he used to be a hitman and that, oh, he possibly couldn't have done those robberies, though. He can be a killer, but he's not a robber because so I was with him in Ocean City, Maryland. Now, Vince was like, we need to go to the police. And Bill told him no. We have no proof. I can control them. I can get the proof. Now, Bill also told Sue Myers about his clandestine meetings with Dr. Smith. And he didn't know why Dr. Smith wanted to kill Susan Reinhardt, only that they couldn't go to the police, again, claiming he could control him. So he's telling variations of this story to different people and the reasons why and why they can't go to the police. Susan, in another conversation with her psychologist, she told her she gave Bill an ultimatum, and he had gotten very angry about that ultimatum, to the point that once he calmed down, he went back to her and said, listen, I can't just walk out on Sue Myers. That might prove fatal to you. He claimed that Sue Myers was hysterical and unstable, and he didn't know what she would do, and that would put Susan Reinhardt in danger, that would put her children in danger. And remember, Sue Myers did threaten her about watching her back and watch out for your children. He was trying to ease Vince Velatis into a relationship with Sue Myers, he said. So it would be less traumatic for her when he left her. But he needed a little more time. Around this time, 
Susan Reinhardt had also told her psychologist and Pat Schooner and Sharon Lee, who were co-workers of her at Upper Marion, that she was going to marry Bill Bradfield this summer of 79. So again, for being frustrated with him, for dragging his feet, for all of these tales of, oh, Sue's unstable, I'm doing this to protect you, she clearly believed them or and wanted she, to believe and them. And he's just, she just keeps falling back into the same trap. Right. Is the thing. And he it's he's just such a master manipulator. It's just unbelievable when you think about how many people he has under his thumb at this point. And along with them getting married in 79, they were going to move to England with her children. But she didn't tell her ex-husband and didn't really want to tell the children yet because she felt her ex-husband would stop her from taking the kids, which he probably would have. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. I mean, perfect sense that he would stop her. So Bill had gone to Sue Myers one day and had put a cohabitation agreement in front of her that he wanted her to sign. And Sue's like, what is this? Like, why, why am I signing this? Now, a cohabitation agreement is an agreement between two people living together, but who are not married. Almost kind of like a prenup, but not married. Mm-hmm. Like, this is yours. This is mine. You're not responsible for this. I'm not responsible for that. Because he feared that Susan Reinhardt had named him as the beneficiary of a, here's air quotes, small insurance policy. And if Dr. Smith were to kill her, then it might come up in the investigation that his name's on this policy. And he was really wanted her to sign this so that he could protect her from any sticky civil lawsuit that may occur. Now, part of the thing in this cohabitation agreement is you have to write down your current and future assets. So Sue was able to see this. And Sue Meyer saw that there was a $250,000 life insurance policy from his mother, and he was the beneficiary for. There was 500000 written down, but no description is given. There also is a 500000 inheritance expected in the near future. From dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Now, Sue was smart enough to go to a lawyer, and the lawyer's like, yeah, don't sign that. And she didn't. So around Thanksgiving of 78, Bill told Sue she had to get out of town for her own safety because Dr. Smith liked to kill on the holidays. Dr. Smith likes to kill on holidays as if he's some serial killer and that Bill is aware of all of these crimes. Well, he may be a serial killer, but (laughs) that Bill is aware of this and he has some sort of special connection to holidays. Mm -hmm. According to him. So she did. She she went out of town. And when she got back, Bill Bradfield credited himself because Susan Reinhart wasn't dead. He said, I kept him under control and kept everyone safe. So in December of 1978, Susan Reinhardt had contacted the USAA insurance company to try to secure a $500,000 life insurance policy, naming William S. Bradfield Jr. as the beneficiary. Now, her application was denied based on the grounds that such a large policy would overinsure. She was a school teacher. She didn't have a lot of assets. We've talked about Bill being a womanizer. Well, let's add one more to the bunch. And her name is Wendy Ziegler. And Wendy Ziegler happened to be a former student of Bill Bradfield's. But when she graduated, they had seemed to have gotten together. And she ended up going to college, actually, in in California. But they still kept in touch. And he was seeing her during the Christmas break when she was home from college. Now, Wendy had told Chris Pappas, again, the substitute teacher at Upper Marion, that her and Bill were going to get married once she graduated college. That was the plan. And Bill also told Wendy about Dr. Smith planning to kill Susan Reinhardt. 
And the excuse he gave her was that somehow Susan Reinhart was going to interfere with the alibi testimony that Bill felt obligated to give Dr. Smith at his trial. So now we have another layer to all this. So in January of 1979, Bill Bradfield continued to work with Chris Pappas, convincing him to work with him to get evidence on Dr. Smith proof that he was planning to kill Susan Reinhardt to the point that they had bought this big blue ski parka that had all these like cargo pockets in it and a ski mask and he gave him all these materials so part of what went into this blue ski parka was chains tape which would go over the mouth and eyes plastic bags which would go over the victim's head to either suffocate or stop the flow of blood from the mouth or nose exercise gloves because you never want to use surgical gloves because fingerprints can be lifted from the rubber and chaining Chris's wrists together and padlocking him together so almost going through time trials like okay you pretend to be Dr. Smith and I'm going to be me or you and this is how we're going to get him and Chris worked on him with this and Bill told him that Dr. Smith gave him all the instruments to murder because he didn't want the police finding them so he claims he got all of this material from Dr. Smith. But you have to imagine, like, how good must his lies have been to say, well, I'm going to provide an alibi for this robbery charge, but we're going to work in the background to prove that he wants to kill this person. And to do that, you're going to pretend that you're him and I'm going to chain you up multiple times to see how fast I can do it. So Susan Reinhardt had contacted her brother, Pat, one day and asked him if he would be interested in putting up some money. She had a friend, Bill Bradfield, who knew of an agent who was offering a 12% interest for a short-term investment. Pat declined because his sister is telling him this. He's like, you know, that doesn't even sound right. And you really need to leave this guy. He's not good for you. And why are you lending him all this money? But unfortunately, Susan didn't listen. Now, I told you earlier she was trying to secure some life insurance, and she hadn't given up on that quest yet. Susan was trying to get a larger life insurance policy after she was denied the first time from New York Life. And she, again, wanted $250,000, but New York Life's like... No, we'll give you a hundred thousand. And I think through negotiations, they were able, they agreed on a hundred and fifty. So she was able to secure at least that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. In February of seventy nine, she went back to USSA again and requested two hundred and fifty thousand dollars again in life insurance, but with two hundred thousand dollar accidental death rider for one year. So this policy would only pay out if she died within that year. And murder was included in that. And the beneficiary, want to guess? Was it Billy? It was Bill Bradfield, her intended husband. That is what she put on the paperwork. Now, Bill had visited his spiritual wife, Mariel, one day. And what Sue Myers found out from this visit is that Mariel, yeah, she wasn't a common law wife. She was, in fact, his legal wife, as was Fran. <laughs> so his first two marriages that produced children were legal marriages. They were not spiritual marriages, common law marriages. And he had asked Mariel for a quickie divorce because he didn't want to get her caught up in a little lawsuit because at the time, him and Vince Velatis and Sue Myers had gone in to uh, like a craft store business in a local mall and it ended up failing. And he's claiming to her, hey, I, I just, we need a divorce so I can protect you and you can keep the house and, and you'll have that property and you won't be involved in all this mess. I'm not sure she did or not. I couldn't find any information as to whether she signed off on it or not. 
So on February 21st, Susan Reinhardt attempted to withdraw $25,000 in cash. Now remember, that was the same amount of money she was going to give Bill Bradfield to give this agent on this 12% return, but she wasn't able to do so. The bank manager refused. He said, listen, my job is to protect you. And what you're explaining to me sounds like a scam, like nobody's giving 12% in 1979. So what she did is she ended up transferring her money to another bank and then slowly withdrawing sums of money, totaling $25,000. So in the spring of 79, Bill Bradfield had Chris Pappas hide some other what he called death tools. So they were still working on their plan to get Dr. Smith. And he also gave him at that time a 30 caliber rifle along with a bag of bullets. And he asked him to grind down the serial numbers and to alter the barrel of the gun. And he did. So quick life lesson before we get to the end. If someone asks you to file away serial numbers on a firearm, don't do it. He reminded Chris to remain silent. He could not tell anyone because if he did, Dr. Smith would kill him and probably his parents. So at some point during the spring of 79, Bill Bradfield traveled to Santa Fe, New Mexico for a wedding and to do a favor for Dr. Smith, having to do with some forged welfare checks. He told Chris that they need to go to House, New Mexico to see a Spanish-speaking couple that Stephanie and Eddie had been staying with. Because remember, they had disappeared and no one had seen them anywhere. So when they got to Taos, Bill Bradfield used a payphone saying he just had to arrange a visit, but didn't need to actually go see the couple. And Chris is like, well, why couldn't you do that back in Santa Fe? Why did we have to drive all the way out here? During this moment when he's using this payphone to set up this visit, one of Stephanie Smith's, the mother, worked at a dry cleaner, and she took a call at their workplace. Now, Stephanie Smith was in the hospital for cancer. She was going through um, some cancer treatments, and the Taos operator connected the call, and a male caller said, hi, this is Eddie Hunsberger. Everything is okay with my wife and me. Please pass the message along to Mrs. Smith. Now, who do you think that was on the other end of the phone? (laughs) Well, and for the, didn't you say they the um, part of the purpose for them being there was to take care of some forged welfare check. The welfare check issue was after Stephanie and Eddie were no longer around, like nobody had heard of them, there's no trace of them, somehow their welfare checks got cashed for about six months. And they got cash because Dr. Smith forged their signatures. So once the government caught on, that got cut off. Because back in the 70s, and I think this went up into the 80s, if you were suffering from a drug addiction or a mental illness, you could get public welfare monies. And both of them did. So that's how they had money for, you know, drugs. But I think <laughs> you know, that sweet, sweet heroin. I get the purpose of it is to keep them fed, is to keep them in housing so that, you know, they're not on the streets committing crimes. But in turn, you're also giving them money for drugs. Now, Bill also told Chris Pappas that he knew of a second person that wanted Susan Reinhardt dead specifically. He said, there's this new guy named Alex from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, who's into kinky sex. And he told him that Susan liked Alex to tie her up and to beat her and to urinate on her. That's called a golden shower, by the way, if you want some more worthless trivia knowledge. I'm going to hope that I never, ever, ever have to use that term. But if you do, you know what it is. Probably again in this podcast. But (laughs) No, I don't think I mentioned golden showers again. (laughs) Bill also told Chris about this double screen contact system he had with Dr. Smith. And that's how they communicated with one another. Because nobody really saw these guys together. 
They didn't really hang out at each other's places. They didn't hang out in the community together because by this time, Dr. Smith had gotten bail. So in phase one of this convoluted screening system, a person would let the phone ring three times and then hang up. So that indicated, okay, something's going on. They would call again, letting it ring once, then hang up. And then they would call back again, letting it ring three times. The other party would then take the phone off the hook. So when the person called back for the fourth time, they would get a busy signal and they knew that they had connected. The second phase of this was each man had a list of 15 pay phones with numerical design behind each number. So the phones were located within a 20 mile radius of their homes. Each had to select their own 15 pay phones and they would exchange lists then. So the caller would wait 20 minutes, then start with the first number on the list and continue down till their partner answered the call. That's, That's some crazy. effort. Crazy. That is crazy. See, now we just have burner phones. It makes life so much so easier. So much easier technology. So Bill even demonstrated this system to Chris and Chris recognized Dr. Smith's voice. At this point, this is where I believed that, you know, definitely these gentlemen had been in contact with with one another. Up to this point in reading this material, I think, okay, Bill Bradfield's a manipulator. He's planning this all up and he's setting up Dr. Smith to be the fall guy. But now I'm not quite so sure. So in April of 79, Bill talked with Vince Velatis about troubles he was having with Susan Reinhardt and that, oh, she had named me the executor of her estate. And he, he felt she was pathetic. He didn't like her. He just felt sorry for her and that he had only tried to be nice, like helping her out. She's a single mom, helping her out with some household chores. So Bill continued to tell people that he was mentioned in her will that he was mentioned in these insurance policies belonging to Susan Reinhardt and that Susan Reinhardt was seeing a kinky person who now, besides the golden showers, I'm sorry, I did mention it again, used human feces in their sexual rituals. <laughs> that is called a dirty Sanchez. <laughs> so I'm getting so much education right now. Pack it away because you never know when you're going to need it. Hopefully never. Bill Bradfield at one point showed Chris Pappas a large amount of cash totaling over $28,000 that he had in the trunk of his car, saying it came from selling off some property and it was his life savings. Now, Chris is like, yeah, why is this in the trunk of your car and not in a bank? He's like, well, you know, if a large amount of money shows up in the bank under my name and something happens to Susan Reinhardt, you know, I could be looked at. In May of 1979, Susan Reinhardt went to her attorney to draft a new will in the event of her death. Now, she was in her like mid-30s at this point, I'll say 38, 39, and she didn't want her brother to be executor of her estate, and her children were no longer her beneficiaries. The sole beneficiary and executor and trustee of her estate would be her future husband, William S. Bradfield Jr. So May 30th of 1979, Bill Bradfield was subpoenaed to give alibi testimony for Dr. Smith's robbery trial. And this robbery trial took place in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, because he was a change of venue. They didn't feel he could get a fair trial down in the King of Prussia area. Dr. Smith's attorney was John J. O'Brien, and O'Brien tried throughout the trial to discredit every eyewitness testimony. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to do so. It was 
pretty strong. Now, Stephanie Smith, who is now in the advanced stages of stomach and liver cancer, did take the stand and testify in her husband's behalf, claiming that he couldn't have committed these crimes because she and Jay were in Ocean City, Maryland that day in August of 77 when the St. David's store was robbed. And she testified even that their daughter, Stephanie, and her husband, Eddie, had gone with them. Now, Jay had taken off for a few hours, she said, to meet with an educational consultant. And on the ride back, she claimed that Jay told her that he ran into Bill Bradfield. So you have to question, did this really happen? One or two, she was under some heavy, heavy cancer drugs. Well, and you don't know, like at this point, they've been married for so long, too. Like, who knows what he's telling her or what she would do to try to help him out, too. Like, I don't think we can fully put, you know, blame, you know, on her if this which I believe it is, a lie. And you don't know. Like, you don't know what that situation looks like for her. You know, she's a dying woman. Maybe he's there supporting her, trying to take care of her. And this is her last chance to help him out. Yep. So Bill Bradfield took the stand and... You know how he thinks he's all that in a bag of chips? Well, he didn't come off that way. He came off being very flat, lifeless, rigid in his testimony. He claimed that on August 27, 1977, that he was visiting a fellow teacher in Ocean City, and he happened to run into Dr. Smith at the entrance of this restaurant around 1225 in the afternoon. He said that Dr. Smith then accompanied him to visit this other teacher, but the other teacher wasn't home, so they left a note, and then they went back to the restaurant for lunch and parted ways around 3 p.m. So when the prosecutor got up, he asked him, well, why didn't you eat lunch before visiting this fellow teacher since you were already at the entrance of the restaurant? And this got Bill really upset. Like, you oh my God, someone's like, questioning me. Right. You don't, I'm, you're just not taking my word for it. He got really mad, started stammering, and wouldn't let the prosecutor speak. He just kept interrupting him. So the jury deliberated for less than two hours and came back with a verdict of guilty for the robbery at the Sears store in St. David's. After this trial, Susan Reinhardt had a conversation with her friend Pat Schumer, really upset because she felt and admitted that Bill lied on the stand. And she knew he lied because she was with him at the shore that weekend. Not, you know, Sue Myers wasn't there. Dr. Smith wasn't there. It was her and Bill going to the shore that weekend. So there's no way he ran into him. And she knew he lied and she was furious. On May 31st of 1979, Susan had contacted her therapist, Rosalind Rivkin, about Bill's testimony. I mean, this really upset her, that she felt he had perjured himself. But she did tell her therapist, I'm not finished with this. I have to know the truth. And she made a date to talk about it with him till she would be satisfied. All that spring in 79, up into June of 79, Bill Bradfield's faded blue VW bug was seen parked in front of Susan's house on more than one occasion. In an early June, one of Susan's neighbors, Donna Fornwald, witnessed Bill Bradfield leaving Susan's house and Susan running out the door crying, calling his name. To me, could have that been her confronting him about his perjury testimony? Now, around the same time, Susan had four life insurance policies and some of them had accidental death riders on them that would kick in again if she accidentally died or was murdered within a year. And her future husband at this point stood to inherit about 730 thousand dollars if she were to die. So she asked for two copies of her policies because her executor, Bill Bradfield, wanted one. But the company refused, saying, no, you get one copy. And that copy was delivered to her on June 20th, 1979. And she had told the insurance agent that she planned to leave the country in a matter of days. Because again, she's been telling people that 
her and Bill are planning to get married and go to England and and all of this. Correct. Now, Bill had driven down to Cape May, New Jersey that weekend and had booked two rooms for him and three companions. And both Susan Reinhardt and Susan Myers were under the impression that they were going to England with Bill. But you see, Bill had already enrolled in a summer program at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico for the summer. The first day of class was Monday, June 25th, and both Bill and Chris were planning to fly down on Friday, June 22nd, and had even purchased plane tickets. So then Bill comes out and says, hey, we need to go to the shore that weekend. We're not going to fly out. We'll fly out on Monday. And he told him, he goes, because I, you know, I need to be around because Jay Smith was being sentenced in Harrisburg on Monday, June 25th. So that's the excuse he gave. Like, I need to be around because I might be called. So we can't leave Friday. We have to leave Monday. But we need to get out of town because this is the weekend I feel Dr. Smith is going to kill Susan Reinhardt. He's going to kill her before he's sentenced. And Chris pointed out to him, wouldn't 2,000 miles away in Santa Fe, New Mexico be a really good alibi? <laughs> and again, that's when he said, well, I might have to be around and testify at his sentencing hearing. So they changed the plane tickets to Monday. On June 22, 1979, which was a Friday, at 3.30 p.m., Bill picked up Wendy Ziegler and drove her to a motel on Route 30. And he told her all about what was happening with Dr. Smith and that he was trying to get the goods on him and he was doing this to protect everyone. Now, at 7.30, Bill took Wendy to the Southeast National Bank and he had her go in and take out all the money in the safety deposit box and bring it to his car. And he explained that, you know, if Dr. Smith really did kill Susan Reinhardt in the next few days, his accounts might be frozen because he was named in her will and it is executor of her estate. And he instructed Wendy to take the money to her parents' home in Wayne, Pennsylvania and stash it where no one would find it. And she did. So he dropped Wendy off at her friend Jenny's house. Now, Jenny also knew about Susan Reinhardt being possibly killed by Dr. Smith. So if you're keeping a tally, I think we're up to about seven or eight people at this point that over the last year, he had told that Dr. Smith was planning to kill Susan Reinhardt. Now, Bill Bradfield kind of dropped off everybody's radar for nearly three hours from about 8.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. that night. On Friday afternoon, Susan had contacted her former in-laws about whether or not her car would make it from Ardmore to Allentown the next morning because she was presenting at a workshop called Parents Without Partners. And there was a gas crisis going on. So that's why she was asking that. There was a gas rationing going on across the country. And the grandparents, you know, had talked to their grandkids and they said, yeah, she should be able to make it. That would be fine. And they had made plans for Michael to visit his grandparents the following week and also for Karen to stay with her father and go to gymnastics camp. So they were, you know, outlining everything they were going to do. So later that that Friday evening, Susan called the president of the Regional Council for Parents Without Partners saying something had come up, an emergency of some sort, and she wouldn't be able to attend the workshop the next day. Around 9 p.m. that night, there was a freak hailstorm that hit the area. Mary Grove was Susan's next-door neighbor, and she had her granddaughter, 16-year-old Beth Ann, staying with her. And Beth Ann had babysat both Michael and Karen in the past, so all the kids were kind of out in the yard picking up these hailstones when Susan suddenly called the kids in around 9.30, but moments later, Later, Mary hears Susan's car pull out of the driveway. And she's like, I hope she's not planning to drive in this storm. At 11.15 that night, Bill arrived at Vince Velatis's door wearing a blue parka, even though it was a hot, muggy night. Remember the blue parka we talked about earlier? So by 12 a.m., Sue Myers, Vince Velatis, Chris Pappas, and Bill drove to Cape May, New Jersey. One point in this trip, Bill jerked upright and stated, this is it. 
I'm afraid this is the weekend Dr. Smith could kill Susan Reinhardt. Like, he went, what movie <laughs> did he see? That's what I want to know. What movie did he see where he thinks that this is the best way to handle that information? Well, he's setting up his alibi in a way. You know, well, we're at the jerking shore. upright at yes. night? No. Yes. In the car. They're on their way there. They're not even in a hotel. They're like, on their way there. What is your problem? So he claims that he tried to protect her. He even circled her house 14 times, but lost Dr. Smith in the hailstorm. Now, on June 24th, 1979, around 7 p.m., two men from South Carolina who were working at Three Mile Island Nuclear Power Plant were checking in at the Host Den, which is now known as the Red Lion Hotel at 4751 Lindell Road. This is right off of Route 283 in Swatera Township, right outside Harrisburg. They spotted an orange 1978 Plymouth Horizon in the parking lot that had its hatchback open, and they thought they saw like a white laundry basket laying in the back. But they didn't really think anything of it, and they went into the hotel. They didn't tell the desk clerk or anything. They they just got their rooms and went on their way. Now, on Monday, June 25th, 1979, around 2 a.m., a Swatera Township police officer was on a routine patrol in the Host Inn parking lot when he spotted the orange hatchback with its hatch still open. He did a radio check on the license plate and found that the car belonged to Susan G. Reinhardt of Ardmore. He went into the hotel and found that there was no guest registered under that name. Upon exiting, he was headed towards the car to check it out. He received a radio call of a fatal traffic accident and he took off without checking out the vehicle. Around 5.20 a.m., Dauphin County Police and Fire Radio Dispatcher received a call from a man who identified himself as Larry Brown. He reported that there was a sick woman in a car at the Host Inn parking lot. Now, the same officer had arrived back on scene from before, and he did a check at the hatchback at this time. And that's when he saw the pale, naked body curled up in a fetal position with her hands tied behind her back. Okay, everyone, that's it for part one. This is where we're going to leave off. Sorry for the little bit of a cliffhanger we're leaving you, but we'll be back soon with part two of the Susan Reinhart murder. So please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever you're using to listen to our podcast today. And then if you want more info, you can also get to us on our Facebook page or our Twitter at CriminalPod. So like Maddie said, we'd love to hear from you and get some feedback from you all. So until next time, remember to be safe, but also be kind. Bye, everyone.